Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Barreling down the road, President Obama sets new fuel efficiency standards for big trucks. Today, in some of America's most polluted cities, the air coming out of a diesel truck, 2010-2011 model, could actually be cleaner than the air going into it. Also, our series Toxic Tide investigating the BP oil disaster continues with the mystery of the elusive chemical dispersants. And a record 46 million Americans are on food stamps. Bringing the farm closer to the fork can help some. Farmers markets are a really interesting way to get fruits and vegetables into the inner city. City folk share in nature's bounty with a little help from a federal food program. This is like, for me, it's $7. 50% discount. These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. Heavy-duty trucks make up just 4% of the vehicles on the road, yet they use 20% of the fuel. Now, for the first time, trucks and other commercial vehicles will have to meet federal fuel efficiency standards. Back in 2007, President George W. Bush signed a law allowing new standards. Now President Obama has set them. Joining me to discuss the new rules is Alan Schaefer, executive director of the Diesel Technology Forum, which advocates diesel as a sustainable energy technology. Mr. Schaefer, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks. Great to be here. So first of all, what kind of trucks uh, are we talking about? This new rule covers uh, trucks of all shapes and sizes, from the big rig tractor-trailer type trucks down to the heavy-duty pickup trucks, kind of the beefier work-grade truck, and everything in between, the cement mixers, fire trucks, you name it. If you've seen a truck like it, this rule covers it. It also covers buses, I should say, too. So let's uh, say for an 18-wheeler, a big rig, what's the new standard? They will be getting about 23% gain in fuel efficiency uh, between now and 2018. Well, how do they meet these new standards? That's pretty ambitious. That's really uh, coming fast and furious. It is, and it starts out with the diesel engine, which now is near zero emissions, and that engine's going to get more efficient than ever before through the use of advanced turbocharging and boosting technologies on the engine and advanced fuel injection technology will make the engine super more efficient in how it burns every drop of fuel, converting more of that fuel into usable energy than waste heat. And then you start to think about the thing that that engine powers, which is the rest of the vehicle. And you try and make the vehicle more aerodynamic. The smaller vehicles, the standard is, what, 10 to 15 percent. But did I hear you say zero emissions from a diesel engine? That's right. You know, we've, we spent the last 10 years making diesel clean. And it, today, in some of America's most polluted cities, the air coming out of a diesel truck, 2010-2011 uh, model, could actually be cleaner than the air going into it. And that's because the engine is now near zero emissions for both particles and ozone kind of smog precursors like nitrogen oxide. But you're still emitting greenhouse gases, uh, climate-changing gases. That's right. And any internal combustion engine is emitting greenhouse gases. So it's important just to keep that in mind. I think the other thing with this rule is that these vehicles 
do work. They haul lots of heavy loads and do lots of different things, so we have to think about them in a different way than we do passenger cars in terms of fuel economy. Well, a big rig, um, how many miles per gallon is it getting right about now? The new generation of big rigs are getting about 5% better fuel economy than the ones made in 2009. So they're, they're pulling down, you know, six, seven, eight miles a gallon. Mm-hmm. Those are trucks that are hauling, again, 80,000-pound payloads. So um, that doesn't sound like a lot of fuel efficiency, but it is, especially when you look at it over, a, over the entire fleet. So how many miles does an average rig get driven a year? The average big rig is anywhere from 100 to 150,000 miles a year. Mm. The fuel bill for a big rig is, is easily in, in close to or above the $100,000 range. So what will the new efficiency standards save? The fuel cost savings that are predicted uh, when all is said and done, fully implemented for these rules, about $50 billion in fuel cost, and EPA estimates uh, about 500 million barrels of oil will be saved from the full implementation of these rules. So trucking companies probably love this, I would guess. It's going to save them fuel, but what about uh, the people that make the trucks and the engines? And I mean, those would be more expensive. It's a win-win on both sides of the uh, of the equation there. From the manufacturer's side, it's, it's the uniformity and having a certainty about what the future looks like. For users, there is a higher investment for these new vehicles. That could be a couple hundred dollars in a small truck up to a couple thousand dollars in the big rig. But the big rigs put down so many miles a year that they'll get the payback of that in a shorter time frame. Really, in a, in a year or two, they'll have recovered the higher cost of the new technologies to make the engine more and truck more efficient. So then going forward, that's just, that's just additional uh, profit in their pocket. I was reading a blog post uh, by the spokesman for the House Majority Leader, uh, Republican Eric Cantor. He says this, The new rules, quote, further tie the hands of job creators and add yet another hurdle to getting the economy up and running. He's basically saying these new standards are, are job killers. Well, <laughs> I, it's, it's hard to say exactly uh, what's behind that statement, and I haven't seen that, that analysis. The new generation trucks are more fuel efficient, and people are seeing that and saying, I can't sit here on the sidelines with this you know, five-year-old truck, and these guys are, are eating my lunch, getting you know, five, six, seven percent better fuel economy per gallon. I've got to get in that game. And uh, that's been driving some of the growth in, in truck sales this year. We've, we've heard that from a number of different sources. This does look like, at this point, it's going to be a, a win for the users and for manufacturers in terms of getting the most fuel-efficient, uh, clean diesel technology out there in the roads. Alan Schaefer is Executive Director of the Diesel Technology Forum. Mr. Schaefer, thank you so very much. Thanks for having us. The BP oil disaster may be history, but the effects are still being felt by many who live along the Gulf Coast or help clean up the mess. Never before had so much crude been dumped into water so deep, and never before had so much chemical dispersant been used on oil as it erupted from the seabed. It's been a year since the runaway well was finally capped, but Gulf Coast residents are reporting a wave of strange illnesses that some suspect are related to the spill. Back in February, Living on Earth's Jeff Young looked into their complaints and spoke with scientists about what might be causing them. Today, we rebroadcast the second part of his investigative series, Toxic Tide, discovering the health effects of the deepwater disaster. We'll call him John. He does not want to use his real name. 
From June through November last year, John worked for a company BP hired to clean up oil in Louisiana's hard-hit Barataria Bay. His boat had a vacuum device to suck up the oil and dispersant mixture. Often, he'd smell it before he saw it. You could smell the hydrocarbons in the air and, and, and you know, just smell that, you know, that oil, and you knew it was coming in. As the wind blew some days, you know, you would get really nauseous. Our skin would itch a lot, and uh, it was just tough. John says he was not offered use of a respirator or other protective gear. Some crew members quit out of health concerns. Now he's wondering about health effects, too. There were many times when we felt that, you know, we were getting sick and we probably should have had respirators on. And um, to this day, um, I'm pretty upset because I just was not informed of the um, contaminants that could affect me and my life as I go down the road. In one way, John's story is like many others from spill responders concerned about chemical exposure during their work on the Gulf. But John's story is different in that his comes with hard data, thanks to a personal air monitoring device. What I've got in this little tube is, this is a small cartridge. It, uh, it looks like a small brass pen. Civil engineer Marco Kaltofen shows the device John wore. As they move through the oil and the dispersant, these little tiny samplers with no moving parts are picking up those chemicals. So we can take them back to the laboratory and measure what was in the air they were breathing while they were working. Kaltofen is a researcher at Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Massachusetts. He's also head of an environmental research company called Boston Chemical, which was hired by a New Orleans personal injury law firm to collect samples. Kaltofen says samples from monitors clipped to John and other fishermen-turned-cleanup workers showed what are called BTEX compounds. BTEX stands for benzene, toluene, ethylbenzene, and xylenes. These are some of the lightest, most readily volatile compounds that are out there in that dispersant crude oil mix. And that's where we found something very interesting, too. It was not the crude oil that was responsible for most of the volatile compounds we're seeing, but it was actually the dispersant. Why do you say that? When we took the dispersant and the crude oil into the laboratory to measure how they partition, how they divide up into the different parts of the environment. When we did that and we looked at the air above our tanks of seawater, we were finding that the same volatile chemicals that were in the air around the fishermen were the ones that we found in the air above the dispersant seawater mixtures. Those volatile chemicals likely come from the petroleum distillates mixed with the Corexit brand dispersants. At least 1.8 million gallons of chemical dispersants were used during the spill. The chemicals most prevalent in the lab tests can affect the cardiovascular and nervous systems, liver, and kidneys. Corexit maker Nalco declined comment, citing litigation. Kaltovin says he had another surprising finding. He found dispersants closer to shore than they should have been used. It's confusing to us that we can go one mile off of Biloxi and find dispersant in the seawater, enough that it, it reeks because of the hydrocarbon odors. And when we got those samples to the lab, we found that we had multiple hits for dispersant compounds. So how could they get into the inshore waters, and how could they still be there weeks after application supposedly ended? We need to get a better explanation. The presidentially appointed Oil Spill Commission looked into the persistent citizen complaints that dispersants were being sprayed too close to shore. A commission staffer says reviews of Coast Guard operation logs found no evidence to support that. 
Kaltovin's work gives us some ideas about how those working on the water might have been exposed to toxics. But what about people who live along the coast? Robin Young of Orange Beach, Alabama, is among the many Gulf Coast residents who say they fell ill not long after oil started coming ashore. We have way too many people that are sick with very odd symptoms that they have never experienced before in their life. So there's something going on. The Environmental Protection Agency monitored air quality during the spill and reported few incidents that would raise a health concern. But University of California Santa Barbara oceanographer Ira Leifer is taking a close look at how coastal communities might have been affected. Leifer was chief mission coordinating scientist for NASA's airborne remote sensing during the spill. Measurements and images from satellites, aircraft, and ships give him a good picture of how components of the oil traveled from the sea and into the air. The same method used to measure the thickness of oil slicks on water, for example, also revealed oil in clouds. Where there was some of these clouds, they showed up as if they had almost a millimeter of oil in the cloud. And these hydrocarbon-laden clouds, when they reached land, would in fact rain oil. Leifer thinks this oil rain is an unprecedented oil spill phenomenon, a combination of the Gulf's high humidity and the columns of thick smoke from burning oil. A lot of things about the BP blowout made it unlike other oil spills. Most spills happen all at once, say when a tanker or pipe ruptures. The BP wellhead kept spewing for 87 days, sending oil to the surface in a plume that Leifer says kept pushing the oil's toxic chemicals into the air. Air sampling that was conducted both on a boat and by NOAA in the atmosphere showed that this plume contained numerous components and that these components were, many of them are toxic, bearing some similarity to the volatiles you might find in gasoline. Prevailing winds could have carried those chemicals on shore. Leifer wanted to know what that might mean for public health. The scientific literature on toxicology and oil spills is thin, so he instead used well-known health data from chronic exposure to gasoline and plugged that data into his model. By that measure, my quick calculations suggested that for an adult healthy person, maybe in effect, maybe not, for a baby, levels were 1,000 to 10,000 times where one starts to see effects. Leifer is quick to add caveats. His results have not yet been tested, and his model makes assumptions that might prove wrong. But he thinks it's important for health researchers to follow through, focusing on the implications for infants, the elderly, and others more susceptible to chemical exposure. Well, now it appears Leifer is getting his wish. Five months after this story first aired, the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences announced a study aimed at the acute and long-term health effects to the general public. In addition to the agency's study of Gulf cleanup workers, this new five-year, $25 million project will involve university health centers in three Gulf states. It will evaluate the level of potentially harmful contaminants in the air, water, and seafood, and how those might affect health outcomes. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young. You can hear part one of Jeff's special report, find out a lot more about what was in the air during the spill, and see some photos from space of the BP oil disaster at our website, LOE.org. And while you're online, visit MyPlanetHarmony.com. Our sister program, Planet Harmony, welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. 
Just ahead, how oil and water do mix in Southern California. Keep listening to Living on Earth. You're listening to a recycled edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The movie There Will Be Blood is set in the desert scrubland of Southern California at the turn of the 19th to 20th century. The story is fiction, but many of the events in this tale of family greed and oil are based on fact. There's a whole ocean of oil under our feet. No one can get at it except for me. Once petroleum did gush from wells in the desert sands of Southern California, but today what's left of the ocean of oil in some parts of this arid region is gooey crude. In places, it's so thick it has to be mined, thinned out with steam. Problem is, this is one of the most water-starved corners of the country. Jeremy Miller traveled to southwestern San Joaquin Valley and wrote The Colonization of Kern County, a story of oil and water for Orion magazine. When you're driving around, there is oil literally bubbling up from the ground in places if you know where to look. It's typical kind of desert, arid, southwest San Joaquin Valley kind of area. Yeah, it's, it's a landscape of oil for sure. And it's interesting because it butts up right against all of the big agricultural regions in the southern San Joaquin Valley. But the type of oil they're extracting now is not this gusher oil. It's, it's more of this thick, heavy stuff. It is, yes. One oil driller that I talked to there described it as the consistency of liver in a meat case. It's a very thick, gooey, molassesy kind of oil. And that's a result of the oil sitting in shallow deposits underground and being exposed to air and bacteria. And these bacteria like to chomp on the oil. And through that process, the oil gets broken down from the kind of the nice stuff that flows like syrup to this sort of semi-solid material. But to extract this type of oil, they have to use prodigious amounts of water in in the form of steam. They do. Yeah, water was the key to unlocking the heavy oil deposits of Kern County. So they're taking this relatively clean water out of the California aqueduct and putting it through cogeneration plants, which create steam, and they pump it underground, and they use that steam to extract the oil. And since that method called steam flooding was pioneered back in the 1960s, most of the oil fields in that area have transferred over to this mode of oil production. So where are they getting all of this water that they use for extracting the uh, oil? So that's a very good question, and that's the, at the heart of my reporting. Uh, and what I found is that a good portion of the water that oil companies use for steam flooding is coming from the State Water Project. The State Water Project administers the California Aqueduct, which is this vast concrete river of water that brings water from the Sacramento, San Joaquin, Bay Delta outside of San Francisco, down all the way to Los Angeles. So this is not only bringing water to irrigate farms in the Central Valley, but also bringing drinking water to Los Angeles, Bakersfield, and the other uh, large municipalities in the Central Valley. So I thought, well, could it be possible that, that some of this water is coming through the state water project? And I called Kern County Water Agency one of the big water distributors in the state, in fact, in the world. They are in command of about a million acre feet of water. I called the water district that serves the main part of the oil fields. It's the West Kern Water District. And asked the director, J.D. Bramlett, are the oil companies taking water from the state water project through the West Kern Water District to do steam flooding? And he told me, yeah, they get most of it. And I said, well, when you say most of it, uh, how much? And he said about 83% of the West Kern Water District's water, which is about 31,000 acre feet. So 
in this parched, dry region, about 83% of the water being delivered through the California aqueduct, through one water district alone, is being given to oil companies for steam flooding operations. So they're using clean drinking water to extract oil from tar sands. They are, yeah. One of the hiccups of steam flooding, if you will, is that they can't just use any water to do it. It's sort of like your coffee maker. If you use dirty water in your coffee maker, you're going to get stuff precipitating out onto the heating elements of your coffee maker. So the oil companies need a clean, a fresh source of water. One shocking thing that I found in in my research is that back in 1985, when oil was at its peak in California, in Kern County, it took about four and a half barrels of water to generate one barrel of oil. Okay, four and a half barrels of fresh water to generate one barrel of oil. Well, that oil field is, is in decline now. Today, it takes close to eight barrels of water to generate one barrel of, of heavy oil. It's enough water to supply 200,000 households, or about 500,000 people, for a year. From reading your article, this is an area um, where the aqueduct carrying clean drinking water goes right past towns that don't have clean drinking water. Exactly. There are dozens of small towns within sight of the aqueduct, as you say, that don't have access to clean drinking water. So that water flows right past to the oil fields, and these towns are forced to to deal with well water that they have, which in a lot of cases is contaminated with agricultural pollutants and, and other natural pollutants. Yeah, it's um, a landscape that's defined by drought. It's a it's a semi-arid desert. I mean, it's this is a, an area where, like you say, every drop uh, of water counts. You know, it's really disturbing to read and think that our addiction to oil or our need for oil is so great that we would use water, water that's scarce, to extract oil from the ground. Yeah, it's it's shocking. There's no other way to put it. And when you're driving in the area, uh, when you're when you're walking around in these dry hillsides, it really comes into focus when you realize that all of those miles worth of silver pipes are carrying a vast amount of superheated steam uh, to get this oil up out of the ground. Well, Jeremy Miller, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Jeremy Miller's article, The Colonization of Kern County, A Story of Oil and Water, can be found in Orion Magazine. federal program that brings farm closer to fork for city folk is on our menu. But first, this note on emerging science from Amanda Martinez. When a person has a stroke, every second counts. A blood clot stuck in a major artery is most often to blame. It prevents blood and oxygen from reaching the brain and cells begin to starve and die. If doctors or EMTs can't loosen the clot quickly, brain damage can become permanent. At the moment, the only way to treat a stroke is to give the victim blood thinners that break the clot apart. But new science suggests that in the future, treatment could be as simple as getting a massage. Scientists at the University of California, Irvine, recently showed that it's possible to prevent stroke damage in rats by stimulating a single whisker. The method was 100% effective, but had to be performed within two hours of blockage in the rat's artery to work. Researchers found that stimulating a lone whisker for four minutes activated the blood-deprived region of the rat's brain. The demand for blood became so great 
It caused alternate arteries to retrieve blood pooled within the clogged artery and reroute it. Imagine a crowded theater full of people trying to escape. Instead of throwing themselves at a single locked door, they suddenly find four emergency exits. But of course, rats aren't humans, and we don't have sensitive whiskers. So the question remains as to whether the technique could work for us. The good news, researchers say, is that our lips and fingertips serve the same essential purpose as a rat's facial sensors. And given how dangerous and debilitating strokes can be, they believe a non-invasive, cheap, potential fix such as this might well be worth a shot. And that's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Amanda Martinez. A record number of Americans are now receiving federal food aid. 46 million people a month. Half are kids. Once known as food stamps, today the program is called SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Despite attempts to increase SNAP recipients' access to wholesome foods, just a small fraction of the federal money, one hundredth of a percent, is spent at farmers' markets. To boost that, some cities are trying a different tactic. Last fall, Living on Earth's Jessica Lee Smith went shopping with some SNAP recipients, trying to balance limited benefits and a healthy diet. On a recent afternoon, the farmer's market in Boston's Copley Square is bustling with energy. Today, a group from the Boston Living Center is on a field trip. We decided to come to the market today to learn how to use the food stamps and also use the Boston Bounty Box. Amber Hansen is the Boston Living Center's registered dietitian. She organized this outing to help the center's HIV-positive members shop for produce using Bounty Bucks the city's program that doubles federal SNAP benefits. It's a dollar-for-dollar match up to $10. Do you want some cauliflower or are you good? How much is this? $4 a pound. You could roast it with olive oil and garlic and salt if you just chop it up and then put some oil on it. Do you have olive oil or canola oil even? Both of those are healthy, good fats. Hansen gives Carlos tips on how to choose and cook his produce. For Carlos and others living with compromised immune systems, fresh fruits and vegetables are especially important for their nutrition. Janet's another member of the Boston Living Center. When you're living with HIV, even though now with the medicines, a lot of people are living longer, but um, it's very important to take care of yourself. Good nutrition is kind of a way to fight back. But fresh produce can be prohibitively expensive. Boston Bounty Bucks is trying to make healthy food more attainable for low-income residents. Edith Murnane is Boston's Director of Food Initiatives. When I visited her at her office in City Hall, she told me this program is all about accessibility. Farmers markets are a really interesting way to get fruits and vegetables into the inner city. I'm not only talking about physical accessibility, but it's really economic accessibility. And the Boston Bounty Box really gets at that. The program also helps out farmers. It makes it economically viable for a farmer to come to the inner city. It makes it economically feasible. There are now 21 farmers markets that participate in the program. Murnane says this shows the city's strong commitment to public health. The program is helping the city's farmers markets accommodate SNAP users by providing grants for new technology. Lee Piper is the assistant farm manager at the Copley Square Market. We have a wireless terminal here at the market. So we can take your EBT card and swipe it through. The terminal logs on to each person's SNAP benefits and matches up to $10 in bounty bucks. 
Piper shows Living Center members how to use their electronic benefit transfer, or EBT cards. So I swipe this, and now you need to enter your four-digit PIN number. Okay. Piper hands Carlos his receipt and counts out 20 bounty bucks. 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. So that's what you can spend. All right. Okay. Armed with his 20 bounty bucks, Carlos decides what to buy. What I would like to buy, se llama color, color green. I love uh, romaine lechuga, letters. Carrying bags of lettuce, collard greens, onions, and mushrooms, Carlos gets in line to pay. Do you want me to load that bag up for you? Thirteen seventy-five is your total. Gracias. Thank you. So the bounty bucks are big help. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This, right. This is like for me, seven dollars, fifty percent discount. Twenty dollars, ten dollars, and I'm more positive that I come back more often. That's exactly why Boston sponsors Bounty Bucks, to have customers return to the market throughout the growing season and eat more fruits and vegetables. The program has become a model for other cities. Farmers markets around the country are starting to add EBT stations, and a few other programs offer financial incentives. The goals are the same, to improve health and nutrition in traditionally underserved populations. How many pounds is that? This is one. For Living on Earth, I'm Jessica Elise Smith. So we could just get a couple. Animals can use patterns and colors as camouflage. Zebras and tigers have their stripes. Hyenas and leopards, their spots. But as writer Mark Seth Lender observes, the white snowy egret stands out in a crowd. The snowy egret lands, the name and color of a substance she will never see. There on the muddy bank, still as chalk her carved and ancient figure stands, stilting. Like Nike, she leaps, sailing into the bright, wide-winged above the shallow water where she feeds, so white sunlight seems shadow. What could be the purpose of such brilliance, snow in summer? Perhaps in some prior life this most strident, most absolute of colors kept her safe in a far and frigid land. And all these amazing feathers are only an artifact of dim ice ages past. Or, in the brief season between her comings and goings, this is her temporary color, as polished and transparent as paper made of rice, except... There is no other phase than white when egret flies. There is fragility in all this. The bird, the salt marsh where she lands, even the turbulent sand. From the south, the assault comes by hurricane, each season earlier and more ferocious than the last. From the north, it is the melting, and where there is no flood, drought. There is no reprieve. As the brackish plain is silted out or altogether gives way, where will snowy egret go? How will she retreat from winter when winter itself is in retreat? When the sun pounds like the hammer to the anvil, all life is forged to the blow. The upper latitudes break away, the equator burns. 
North and north and north the southern creatures go, driven there by unfamiliar weathers. Life once rare becomes common, the common vanishes. Perhaps it is not camouflage, but survival of a more intense and personal kind which turns the egret white, reflecting not just light, but heat. Maybe she will be all right. What about us, I wonder? Mark Seth Lender's new book is called Salt Marsh Diary, A Year on the Connecticut Coast. To see some of his photographs and find out more about his writings, go to our website at LOE.org. Coming up, our aging infrastructure for electricity and water. The grid, the bad, and the ugly. Stay tuned. It's Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Gilman Ordway, for coverage of conservation and environmental change. And the Sierra Club, welcoming students back to college with Sierra Magazine's annual ranking of America's coolest schools. Online at sierraclub.org slash livingonearth. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's a recycled edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. It's easy to take our electric grid for granted and the pipes that provide our water as a given. You flick on a switch and the light comes on. Turn on the tap, clean water. At least that's what's supposed to happen. But pipes and power lines are vulnerable to age and attack from nature and terrorists. Two books that examine the infrastructure of the United States are On the Grid by Scott Hewler and Nick Rosen's Off the Grid. As you might guess from the titles, the authors have some very different ideas. So we invited them on our show to grapple about their views of the grid with Living on Earth, Steve Kerwood, acting as referee. So I'm looking at your book, Nick Rosen. Yes, the title's Off the Grid, but also it says Inside the Movement for More Space, Less Government, and True Independence in Modern America. Uh, In brief, what's your book about? Well, literally, off-grid means living without utilities, but also it has a metaphorical meaning, which is living kind of outside the system or half in and half out of the system. And so going off the grid is something that more and more people are doing because it's getting easier. The technology is allowing it. The low-energy fridges, the uh, more efficient solar panels, and the fact that it's becoming more acceptable and you're allowed to telework, you know, be on the Internet in the, in the boonies. So uh, people are exercising this freedom some of them are and scott hewler your book is called on the grid a plot of land an average neighborhood and the systems that make our world work tell me in brief what's your book about my book is about all of the systems that the people in nick's book want to do without my book starts from my house and looks up and says, look at all these things sticking out of my house, these wires and these tubes and these pipes. Where do they go and how do they work? And it asks questions like, okay, we had a drought here in Raleigh, a a drought of biblical proportions where it just stopped raining for months. And in the middle, in the worst part of that drought, when we were almost out of water, you could turn on your tap and brush your teeth for 20 minutes with the water running while you were humming Mozart and you would never run out of water. And it asks questions like, how on earth is that possible? How could it be that that happens? And you flush your toilet and you never have to think for five minutes about what happens to that stuff. And how can that be? And is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? And above all, just how does it work and how did we get to this place and and, and what next? 
Well, it seems both of you would agree that for 99.9% of us, we all would be looking for electricity and water in our lives. You two don't disagree on that, do you? Not a bit. I have a a small quibble with that. Living off-grid doesn't mean doing without electricity and water. It means providing your own electricity and water. And a lot of people would say, well, why on earth would I want to do that? But there are quite a few people who think they have can answer that question. They say they want to do that because of the ever-increasing price of electricity or because they don't trust the system to deliver them electricity and clean water and the other things that we traditionally rely upon the state to provide. And they've come to distrust the state and authority and the financial system, and they just want to provide for themselves. It's not so much self-sufficiency, although for many that is a factor, it's self-reliance. So, Scott Hewler, what about this? I mean, in fact, within the last, say, six weeks, right, where we are in the studios at Living on Earth, we've had to boil our water because the water main system failed. We've had uh, power outages. And, of course, almost every day we have traffic jams. So these folks who are looking to get off the grid, is how much of a bad thing do you think that is? I am in favor of all kinds of sort of adjunct technology and technology that frees you from paying companies uh, who you don't trust or anything like that. If you want to generate your own power, I'm in favor of that. If you want to clean your own water rather than using municipal water, I'm in favor of that too. But no matter how easy the systems get and how great the systems get, I think it's still going to be a lot more trouble for each person to do it than to do it as a group. And yes, as you pointed out, Steve, in Boston, you had that that shocking water main break. The collar they put on that water main was seven years old. That's It's unspeakable that something like that should be breaking. And that demonstrates how bad we are getting at paying the taxes to take care of these systems that take care of us. But I much more strongly trust a municipal water system and the people who run it and, and who have degrees in running that then I would trust my neighbors to take good enough care of their sewage so that my water, if it was coming from a well, wasn't fouled. And uh, well, you maybe say that. Go ahead. Yeah, you say you trust the municipal water authorities, but the fact is, as I describe in my book, Associated Press uh, did a survey of most of the major municipal water systems, and they found that. The water was polluted with all sorts of drugs that have passed through the human body and then not been taken out by the filters. So, actually, I think that trust is a bit misplaced. And uh, I'm not saying we should all stop drinking the tap water immediately, but what I am saying is that I can completely understand somebody who wants to provide their own water. And let me be sure I understand what you're saying, Scott. If many suburban areas, just a little beyond, say, the reach of of a uh, main sewer system, they use septic tanks and leach fields and they have wells. What kind of risk do you think these people are at? I don't think they're at an enormous risk. When you have septic systems and you have, as you say, wells and you have government people coming out to manage that and make sure that they're installed properly, I'm in favor of all of that. I'm just saying that living in Raleigh, North Carolina, on my quarter acre lot, I don't care to get off the sewer system and I don't care to get off the municipal water system. And I've just spent two years hanging around with the people who manage and run those systems. And I couldn't have come away more deeply impressed with the work they do under very difficult circumstances with never enough money. And though I certainly see Nick's point that there are more and more dangerous substances showing up in those systems and we're always 
running behind to catch up with a new thing that we found. That's always been the case. I don't think that that indicates some sort of malfeasance on their part. And I don't think that it indicates that they're not doing well enough. I think that it indicates there's something new. And especially when you look at these personal care products or these pharmaceuticals, that's us putting that stuff in the water. It's not the treatment people throwing it in the water. It's us putting it in the water. We could solve that problem by using less of those products quicker than we could by waiting for them to find a way to pull out what we're dumping. I don't really buy that argument that we've got to be uh, a bit careful about where we urinate after we've taken a contraceptive pill, for example, because we know that that's not going to be filtered out by the water system. You know, I think it's an all-or-nothing case. If you're a big water company, you either say you can do the job or you get out of town. You can't sort of be selective and say, well, we can do it, but just not that bit. You know, I have also got great respect for the kind of middle-ranking engineers who keep the system going. But the fact is that the history of the electricity business and the water business is a history of corruption and devious business practices, which are aimed entirely at maximizing the profit of the businesses and really are not specifically designed to be in the interests of the public. Okay, Nick, wait a second. That's a very broad brush to tar an industry. So please explain, at least give us an example here. Enron is an example of what happens when we just let the utility companies get completely out of control. But Enron is just indicative of the state of the overall electricity industry, because at the moment, the industry is not sufficiently regulated and spends as much time trading electricity with itself as it does supplying the electricity it produces to ordinary members of the public. I I couldn't agree more with that, that something like Enron is a great example of unregulated industry gone wild. And your examples of what's wrong with industry, to me, that's human history. There's a shock for you that when you look at people who amass power and amass control, they suddenly stop acting in the public interest and start lining their pockets. This is not a stop the presses moment. This is reality. This is how human beings act. And so... So I'm totally in favor of enormous regulation and enormous public control, but I'm still not convinced that the way to move forward is to disassemble the grid. There's an enormous part of the world that would hear you saying, I think that sewage treatment or municipal water supply is is a huge scam. People would weep to hear you who have it talking about I want to do without it, whereas, you know, a billion and more people in this world would give an arm to have their children, give their children access to the water that any Western European or North American could get by doing nothing more complicated than turning on the tab. Well, that's a very interesting point, because if you're talking about the couple of billion people in the world who are not on any grids, then I would say of them that in places where the grid does not yet exist, there is no longer any need to invent it. The grid as it exists in America, the electricity, the water, the roads is an extraordinary technological achievement. But it may turn out to have been of its time, and that time may be about to pass. We have found that, in fact, we can do a much more efficient job by creating energy locally, much closer to where it's used. Now, I'm not talking about in each individual building here. I'm talking about something called microgrids. But it is very much literally a case of returning the power to the people rather than allowing it to be centralized in the hands of a few producers. After studying the grid, you both came to the conclusion that it is tremendously vulnerable. Knowing this, what should we do? And what have you done with this knowledge? 
Let me start with you, Scott. The most important thing that I think we could do is take a serious look at our tax structure. I think we need to start paying taxes and taking care of these things. I guess I'm going to be labeled as a tax and spend liberal, but I'd love to see us pay more taxes and take more care of it through government oversight. Let me ask you the same question, uh, Nick Rosen. After studying the grid, you say it's uh, tremendously vulnerable. So what should we do? And and what have you done with this knowledge yourself? So what I would say is what we should do is be aware that it's an option, that living off the grid is an option that you don't need to be scared of, that it really is quite doable. I quite agree with Scott. You really wouldn't want to do it all yourself. But I wouldn't mind being part of a community which supplied its own power and water, and where one or two members of that community were more involved in maintaining those systems than the rest of us. And what would be the advantage of that? There are many different reasons that people give you for living off-grid. One of them is a fear of peak oil or a fear that the system is going to collapse in some way. There's an argument that says, I don't really want to spend my life maintaining my mortgage and paying the utility bills when I could live somewhere a bit smaller, a bit less expensive without any utility bills, and then I don't have to work so hard. So there's an element of freeing yourself from the, uh, from the cares of, of society. Scott Hewler, you write that you can't go off the grid anymore. We're all on the grid. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I think that in a larger sense, I think it's almost impossible to go off the grid. And I would make air quotes if you could see me because all these people who are off the grid have their their satellite internet technology. And of course, the internet is powered entirely by grid power. And they, you know, they drive on paved roads when it's time for them to go into town and, and get their groceries, the groceries that they don't grow themselves. So I question whether you really even can get off the grid anymore. Nick Rosen, as we were getting ready for this interview, the thought came up that, you know, off-the-gridders are seen as extremists. You know, these are people who are really pretty upset with society and, and want to check out of it as best they can. How accurate is that? For some of them are. For some people, that is completely accurate. And I met some very angry and very paranoid people, intelligent, but yet frightening in their mistrust of the system and in their belief, for example, that, you know, 9-11 was a, a George Bush conspiracy. And that was given to me twice as the reason why uh, certain individuals that I interviewed in the book are, are living off-grid. And I find that sad and, and worrying. But equally, the majority of people who live off the grid, the ones I met anyway, are doing so for different reasons. And they're not doing it in a solipsistic and hermit-like way. They're doing it as part of a group, part of a society of other people living off the grid. I don't mean necessarily they're living in a commune but they might well be living in an off-grid community where hundreds of others like them are also living that way. It seems to me both of you are saying that we need to be aware of how and where we get our power, our water, uh, how we travel, the resources. If I listen carefully, you're both saying the same thing. Uh, can't really get completely off the grid, and yet you can't simply mindlessly be on the grid and not pay any attention to the consequences of our actions. The one area where I disagree with Scott, although I I do admire his uh, focused examination of the grid, I think that he goes a little bit too far in, in kind of championing the grid. And um, I think that uh, that Scott is, is a bit of a cheerleader for the grid, whereas when he charts its shortcomings, I'm very much in agreement with him. But when he holds it out as uh, something worth spending $2 trillion to preserve, I'm not so sure I'm with him there. Scott? Well, I think Nick's exactly correct. I am nothing short of a cheerleader for the grid. I spent two years looking at this stuff and saying, 
oh my God, how did this happen? And and how what an amazing accomplishment it is. Where it's going in the future, I can't be sure of. Neither were the people who I spent all this time with. They're not sure, but they all believe that they can manage it and they can they can keep it working and keep it working well. I think that Nick, Nick they has can. pointed out... They can keep it working, Scott, but at what cost? Can you imagine all the different ways that that money could be spent in order to set up local systems for dealing with water and uh, waste disposal, in order to set up small-scale electricity production? You could run the entire country in a completely different way. You could. I'm not convinced that that would be better or cheaper. It might be, and it's well worth studying. I think that when you can build, uh, I just saw Raleigh opened up a $90 million water treatment plant. And what they can do there at the 15 to 20 million gallons per day rate, they can do enormously wonderful things. I'm not sure that you can do that if you're going to do it all small scale. Maybe you can. I'm, I'm willing to be convinced, but I haven't seen that nor have I seen the structure by which you'd put in 50 sewer plants to replace our one sewage treatment plant. And that leaves me basically trusting the fertilizer that they produce, the soil treatments that they produce. These resource issues are the questions we're going to be asking every day of our lives. And so I wrote on the grid so that you would be aware, where does my electricity come from? Where does my water come from? Where does my sewage go? Where does my trash go? Who paves my roads and how and why? If you have a basic understanding of how it works, at least you'll be prepared to be an enlightened citizen, an informed citizen in the debates that will come, that will make the the small disagreements that Nick and I have had here look like playing patty cake when people start really talking about spending real money. Scott Hewler's new book is called On the Grid, A Plot of Land, An Average Neighborhood, and the Systems That Make Our World Work. And uh, Nick Rosen, your book is called Off the Grid, Inside the Movement for More Space, Less Government, and True Independence in Modern America. Well, I want to thank you both for taking this time with me today. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much. That's Living on Earth, Steve Kerwood, debating life on and off the grid. on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobed, Helen Palmer, Ike Sriskandaraja, and Mitra Taj. With help from Sarah Calkins, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Susan. Our interns are Daniel Gross, Stephanie McPherson, and Anne-Marie Singh. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find this anytime at LOE.org. And be sure to check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And you can follow us on Twitter at Living on Earth. That's just one word. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Go Forward Fund and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. Pax World, for tomorrow.
PRI Public Radio International.